the History Show with Mars Duncan. Good evening. On this week's programme, a century of Angarda Siakona. So when they turned up to training and they looked at the commanders who were over them, many of those commanders were ex-ORIC. How the guards began amidst the gathering storm of civil war and how they adapted to meet different challenges over the decades. The people and the politicians at that point realised that these are ordinary members of our community Mm. going out to the front line so citizens won't have to. We'll also hear stories of some of the most famous Gardaí whose names still resonate through the organisation. And it just happened at Lugs and a couple of the boxing team walked around the corner and one of the young lads said, "Geez, there's Lugs Brannigan and the whole lot of them scattered. 2022 is the centenary year of Ungarda Siakona and to mark 100 years of our National Police Service, events and exhibitions have been taking place all over the country. Tonight, we're going to open up the Guard's official publication, which explores the institution's history from its formation in that turbulent period between the War of Independence and the Civil War right up to today. The book is called The Guardians, 100 Years of Ungarda Siakona, 1922 to 2022. It's published by O'Brien Press and it includes contributions from guards of every rank as well as historians and academics. And I'm joined this evening by the editor of the volume, Garda, Stephen Moore. Also with me are two contributors to the book, Superintendent Paul Marr and Sheila Brady, a security consultant and a former Garda sergeant. You're all very, very welcome indeed. Um, Stephen, not long after the treaty was signed, the guards were set up, set up, I think, in a bit of a hurry by the provisional government? Yes, well, very quickly, um, they noted that to maintain the rule of law in the country, that a a new police force had to be formed. The two police forces that were there, the Dublin Metropolitan Police and the RIC, particularly the RIC, were not wanted to survive, basically going on to a a new free state. So a meeting was set up for the 9th of February, 1922, and a group got together to form what we now know as Ungarda Sheikana. And how different were they meant to be or were they intended to be from what had existed before? Now, forgetting about the RIC and the DMP, but the Republican police, who were basically just glorified IRA men, weren't they? Well, what they wanted was they wanted a centralised, uh, organised police force an answerable police force to go out amongst the the locals up and down the country and to be accepted by the people of Ireland to be their their police force and be accepted in every every town and every village. That was the plan. They wanted to be different from the RIC. The RIC did not necessarily have the best relationship with, with the public up and down the country. So it was important that as a free state that we formed our own police force. Now, you've got a makeshift headquarters in Kildare Town, a mix of former RIC men, DMP men. The DMP continued on, actually, until 1924. And then hundreds of former IRA men training under them. And that led to a mutiny. Well, it did. Well, I suppose even today, if you think about it, it, it was it was a new country. It was a free state. So you, you, you had all these young men from up and down the country who had fought for this freedom. And the origins of, of the very first members of Ungarda Sheikana or, or the Civic Guards, as they were known, 97% were ex-IRA. So when, when they came, when they signed up, and to sign up, you, you, you had to be put forward with a letter of recommendation from, you know, maybe a commander in, in, in an army regiment or a local priest. 
to go forward to to join the new police force. So when they turned up to training and and they looked at the commanders who were over them, many of those commanders were ex ORIC. So you can imagine how these are the guys they've been shooting at exactly, a couple of months before. Exactly. So these these were the enemy, you know, and and all of a sudden they arrive up and as they thought the enemy were still in control. So this led to, to a lot of discontentment, obviously, amongst the, the new members who were there. But these RIC men were, were hand-picked RIC mm. men. They were actually RIC men who had been working for Michael Collins. Did nobody kind of step forward and say, listen, lads, these guys are different from the guys you've been shooting at for the last two and a half years? Well, the, the normal Joe Soap wouldn't have known that. So they would have just seen the uniform. They would have just seen the name and they wouldn't have had the information to hand in relation to that. So so when they came in, when they when they started uh, training, for want of a better term back then, it did lead to, to issues that led to problems and it led to what we know today as the, the Kildare Mutiny. And how serious was that? Yeah, very serious. It, it was, I suppose, we're in the middle of a civil war. There's the state, there's the anti-treaty, the treaty, the pro-treaty side. And within the, the factions of the members who, who joined the Civil Guard, there would have been inklings of both sides mm. kind of coming together. So the Kildare Mutiny could have led to, to further issues, further problems, and not having a police force in situ to take care of the rule of law up and down the country. And where was Michael Staines, the first commissioner of the Garda Síochána, when, when all this was going on? Well, my, Michael Staines was also an elected uh, member of the of the Dáil from I, I think it was a Dublin North constituency. So he he was running both posts at this time. So when the issues surrounding the Kildare mutiny were, were taking place, Michael Staines did go down to Kildare to speak to the men in 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 relation to address the issues and the problems that were there. But as first commissioner of the Civil Guard, it became apparent that he was unable to to conduct both roles as an elected politician and as a, a, a commissioner. So Michael Staines, he will go down in, in history as the, the first commissioner of Agarda Síochána, but his term in office was short and he was replaced by uh, Owen O'Duffy mm. a few months after the, the formation of, of the Guards. Now, Paul, the issue of an unarmed, it being an unarmed force, to what extent did the Kildare mutiny Make that decision for the for the for the for the free state government that you know these guys they've already mutinied they could be dangerous if we give them weapons they could be even more dangerous as Stephen was suggesting some of them could be anti-treaty etc etc was that what where where the decision came from Yeah, there's a, there's a few schools of thought, but the main one is the mutiny that seems to be you know the catalyst that began a new report under O'Shea in relation to the new police force. So the whole decision about you know having an unarmed police force it was an ideological move away from colonialism. It was an ideological leap. It was you know this was to be a police force that was to police with the consent of the people. This wasn't to be an occupying force. And and this is a new way of thinking. Um, unarmed. The whole role of the new police um, would be, you know, civic assistance. They were to be trained in first aid. You know, it was all about getting out and helping the community. I suppose if you're not armed, that is one thing that distinguishes you from the RIC. That is it. And that's the fantastic thing about it. But as, as Stephen was saying there about Kildare, a lot of these factors politically and otherwise influenced 
the activities of the guards in Kildare because you know if you think about it the country wasn't really split you know loyalties were beginning to divide Simon Donnelly and the Republican police was anti-treaty Michael Staines and the Republican police was pro-treaty um, he's a TD so this new ideology about being a non-political police force was already tainted with Staines because he was a TD so that issue in terms of being armed or otherwise, there were actually members of the Civic Guard out and about from time to time with weapons, but they didn't have any major engagement with anti-treaty forces. So the mutiny as well, you have to think that the guards and there's about 1,500 or 2,000 of them sitting around the place. They're not yet being deployed. The army is still engaging with anti-treaty forces. The irregulars are in power in a lot of places. There's a lot of local militia around. You know, we're not ready in this country just yet for an unarmed police force because they probably would have been ripped to shreds if they were out too early. So you have 1,500 or 2,000 men, and they were men, and they're sitting around in Kildare. They're talking about politics. They're not getting paid. If you remember, there was a huge delay in, in the wages. And this is, you know, adding to the discontent and militancy of the people. And, you know, we know that Rory O'Connor actually left the four courts, went down, raided you know, he raided Kildare, took the weapons out of it because he had, you know, sympathisers in the Civic Guard at the time allowing him in. We know that Staines was refused entry. You know, there's a lot of dynamics going on mm. in terms of people's loyalties. But that decision in terms of being unarmed, yes, it was policy, but it was events that actually led it to be unarmed, the police force to be unarmed, as opposed to any political decisions. Stephen, was there an economic motive behind it as well? Uh, we were on our uppers. We hadn't, uh, you know, two halfpennies to rub mm. together. So arming, arming, arming a police force would have cost a few bob. Well, definitely that was that was part of it. Like we, we didn't have the money, uh, you know, or a free state setting up. We, we didn't have money to uniform uh, the new police force, never mind arm everybody in the new police force. So... You know, the, the the great saying by Michael Staines, it is there and it is written in history. We have ruled by the, the will of the people and not by arms. You know, it is there. But you do have to take the economic side to it as well and, and kind of say that as a country, we could not afford to arm a police force. Yeah, I mean, there was sixpence to come off the old age pension first. Uh, and, and, yes, uh, it's <laughs> exactly. Right. Think about <laughs> yeah. it. Um, in the book, Paul, uh, your chapter is on Oriel House. Now, when I mention, even now, even thinking about it, even saying Oriel House, a shiver goes down my my spine because of the associations uh, with with Oriel House. But in fairness, not all of those associations have anything to do with the with the Garda, but it was the headquarters of something called the Criminal Investigation Department. I'll ask you in a little bit to separate some of the really nasty stuff that was coming out of Oriel House that had nothing to do uh, with the Criminal Investigation Department or nothing to do with uh, with on, with Angarda Shiakana. But tell us about the set, the establishment then of the CID. Yeah, so Collins wanted to have uh, a criminal investigation department established and it was sort of born from his old squad and his army intelligence section. So the people that he put in charge in there um, were from actually one of his active service units under uh, the director, which was a Captain Moynihan, who'd worked for the Postal Service. And Moynihan made his reputation by ensuring that good intelligence was going to the volunteers in relation to correspondence. And of course, correspondence in those days was by letter and Collins already had uh, the RIC infiltrated and the DMP infiltrated. So he was able to get the ciphers, but Moynihan was crucial to get that correspondence. So that's where Moynihan gained his reputation. So when the Criminal Investigation Department was actually established, 
It was housed in that building called uh, Dunlop Oriel House, which, which is on the corner of Fenian Street and Westland Row. And, uh, you know, there are varying reports or varying records about the number of personnel that went in there. But what we know is at the outset, it reported to the Department of Defence. So the ranks, for example, private, corporal, sergeant, lieutenant, captain, you know, it wasn't until later that it became detective officer, sergeant, inspector and superintendent, you know, when, when the Department of Home Affairs took it. And that, I think, was August um, of the following year, 1922. So there was a lot of work that went on in terms of the active service unit and their personnel, their trusted personnel. However, intelligence let them down. Mm. Now, there was very little surveillance going on. The whole thing was the old operations under the British, get the tout, get the informants. But the police work in order to substantiate intelligence or to get new intelligence, that was lacking. So there was a little bit of chaos in terms of the clarity of the role because they really were unsure as to what they were supposed to do. But there was a lot of crime, a very serious crime, irrespective yes. of, uh, uh, you know, the intelligence end of it going on in Dublin at that time. The, the place, I, I actually didn't realise it, Miles, until, you know, we, we recently acquired a book um, called the Dublin Metropolitan Police Letters Book. Uh, and it details a lot of what was going on in the civil war in, in the southwest inner city. The place was absolutely chaotic. I cannot um, state that enough. There are robberies literally all of the time. There are people going around the city of Dublin and they're saying they're from the IRA and they're robbing groceries, they're robbing alcohol, cigarettes, meats out of butchers, they're robbing factories. One of the incidents is CID badges are taken from a foundry in Bishop Street. You know, IRA personnel go in and they take those badges. So all of this is adding to the muddied waters that CID are working in because people are going in and saying, well, we're from Oriel House and here's a badge. They're going into people's homes. They're going in and taking property without warrant. This is the type of crime that's going on. And it's very intimidating for the local community because they've nobody to turn to. If you think about it, the Dublin Metropolitan Police were largely ineffective. And even the old DMP reports talk about the Free State troops as IRA in uniform. And some of those Free State troops are shooting at unarmed Dublin Metropolitan Police officers. There is mention in the letters book by, I think, Dan Barrett, the assistant commissioner in the Dublin Metropolitan Police, at a particular incident on Christmas Day in 1922, where Free State soldiers jump out of their crossly tender and they search an on-duty Dublin Metropolitan Police constable. And he says, well, you know, what are we doing searching We're a DMP a man? Like, mm. you know, but the whole thing was the sergeant major in charge of that group said, I've no orders to the contrary. But when Barrett reads the report, the assistant commissioner reads the report, he puts in a note in red ink that this incident is aggravating a previous situation where Free State troops had been firing on DMP officers, DMP constables. So I can't find a report about that specifically, but I found a note from the assistant commissioner. No, I mean, the, the point being, you, you might expect the IRA to be firing on DMP, but you certainly would not expect the Free State Army to be firing on the DMP. And this is happening. And at Oriel House, for example, there are anti-treaty IRA taking pot shots at Oriel House. And this is the, this is the environment that Oriel House are, are working under. One of their officers is killed uh, in Christmas 1922. And, you know, on the day of his death, they go on the rampage. And that night they're encountered by Free State soldiers. And the Free State officer <coughs> in charge of those soldiers 
writes a report and said he has serious difficulty. He has serious difficulty in stopping gunfire between the two groups. Uh, why do I associate, though, Oriel House? Then, why does it give me a shiver? Because I associate it as almost a generic term for extrajudicial murder. Yes, and, and that tone is set by Collins on the 8th of August 1922 when he sends a letter to O'Higgins and he says to O'Higgins that disorder in Wexford, agrarian unrest, people burning hay barns, people intimidating landlords, people intimidating their neighbours and farms. You know, all of this issue with the land agitation that was going on at the time when landlords were leaving and, you know, people were looking at vacant premises. They were looking to try and get in and get these farms. But Collins writes and he says that anybody engaging in this type of behaviour is to be shot on sight. So this sets the tone when O'Higgins becomes Minister for Home Affairs. O'Higgins is the most conservative revolutionary I think we've ever had in this state. And he is about everything. He is about a new society. He is about temperance. He is about law and order. And he wants to put down any opposition to the free state and he wants to do it the most effective way he can. And that's by using executions. And all of these executions, extrajudicial or otherwise, you know, a lot of those ones that are happening in the regions are being done by local commanders and they're being done without sanction or knowledge of headquarters. But headquarters are letting them go ahead and stretch those boundaries. They're not actually taking them to task. And the problem, of course, is when you have this being done in the name of a police force or police service, that's taken away your relationship with the public. So you're really on unsteady ground now when you're going back down into these areas that may have been anti-treaty and they've all lost people in the community. But O'Higgins was very resistant to any type of, you know, meeting people halfway. He didn't want to do that. He wanted to impose his authority. And the Special Infantry Corps which mirrored the activities of Oriel House in country areas. They had no problem going in and putting down agrarian unrest, putting down industrial disputes, uh, ensuring that local militia groups around the country um, were told in no uncertain terms, we're in charge. And that is the issue for the new state. And if you think about the Civic Guard, and we, we talk about policing the Civil War, it's actually the lack of policing in the Civil War. Mm. Because the Civic Guard going out as an unarmed group are going out outside Dublin the border still hasn't been determined. I mean, at this stage, we're still thinking that the border commission that's being proposed, the boundary, commission, yeah. boundary commission, yeah. is going to give us more territory. Also, if you look at the initial group of allocations, you know, the where civic guards supposed to go to Newry. So there's a lot of uncertainty that's going on throughout the country. And but O'Higgins absolutely put his foot down in terms of any threat to the free state, and he did so with extrajudicial. Executions. Um, Stephen, tell us about Ireland's first Garda, PJ Kerrigan, a very colourful individual, to put it mildly. He was. Uh, PJ Kerrigan, I think he served on three police forces and two armies, uh, <laughs> I, I think, at the time. Uh, a lot of research ha- ha- has been done on PJ, and a uh, gentleman you know yourself, Jim Hurley, has done a lot, of, a, a lot of research on PJ. In relation to PJ, PJ's family in County Mayo, they knew the Staines' family and he was invited to join uh, this new police force at the time, the Civic Guard. So he took up the chance to join and he became number one Garda in in the book, as as we call it. There's a, a member's book of the first Civic Guards that joined. On, uh, so he's number one? He is number one. Now, there's a claim by 
the number two guard. That number two guard was number one and number one was number two. Well, you'd expect that. This, yeah. this is um, Ireland, after all. And the first name in the book is actually a superintendent who signed the book by mistake. And, and his <laughs> name was quickly uh, red marked off it. But we are happy to say that, that PJ Carrigan was number one guard. A former RIC man. Former RIC man, yes. Also fought in World War One. Yes. And uh, then goes on to have, let's face it, a less than distinguished career in on Garda Siakona. Well, well he, he did. When he, when he joined, he, he, he was, let's say, he was let go. Uh, <laughs> at, 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 you can say that. He, he was let go for... He struck a prisoner. He struck a prisoner. He, he, I think at the time, Michael Collins was, was called a certain name and he was called a black and tan. And he struck this prisoner and he was disciplined and he was let go from the force at the time. Now, he then went on and joined the DMP. And again, he, he got a number in the DMP. When the DMP amalgamated with Ungarda Sri in 1925, he found himself back in Ungarda Sri The story then went that he fell ill and got himself into a little bit of debt uh, at the time. Now, the code w- it was very strict at the time and very strict, particularly on, on guards, you know, taking debt and not being able to pay back debt. And it was a, a dismissal offence if, if found guilty. So unfortunately, PJ Carrington, when he fell ill, he was unable to, to pay for a number of bills for the family and so forth. And somebody who, one of his debtors, contacted the organisation and for the second time, PJ Carrington was let go from Ungarda Chicana. Now, his, his life then kind of changed a lot as when he was looking for work, he went over to Liverpool first, looking to provide for his family back in Dublin. From Liverpool, he then travelled over to the United States. I suppose that's where his, his the moral question of, of PJ Carrion kind of comes in. And he still had a family in Dublin while he set up a new family over in, in the United States. Now, it was thanks to actually to Jim Hurley for getting the two families together because they never knew that each one existed, of course, at the time. And many years later, I think it was for the 75th anniversary of Angarda Chicana, Jim was able to reach out with both families and make that connection with both families. So definitely, as you say, Miles, a very colourful uh, career in, I think, was it two, three, two police forces in the army? Uh, three police forces, because I think he ended up in the police force over in America as well. <laughs> what a surprise. Yeah. So uh, three three police forces and two armies, I think. Two armies. Um, somebody else who was extremely colourful was the f- not, not the first, but the second Garda Commissioner you've already mentioned, uh, Owen O'Duffy, who then goes on to a an, an even more colourful career, the colour blue in particular, being predominant. Tell me a little bit about his career, because he he. Did last he? There's an assumption that as soon as Fianna Fáil came into power, he was sacked. He wasn't. He he continued for for about a year. But this is somebody who apparently advised W. T. Cosgrave do not hand over power to these people, and he's still uh, a guard, the commissioner, one year or almost one year into the Fianna Fáil administration. Tell us a bit about Ono Duffy. But I suppose in in the book we we kind of focus on on Owen's career in Ungardishikana, and we don't really dwell on on what happens afterwards. So. When Owen came to become the second commissioner of Garda Chicana, he was a very loved commissioner and he was very well respected by, by the men under his commissionership. He formulated and he started a a kind of side to Garda Chicana that we still have today, which is that community based, you know, police officer going down to the country. He had two strings to it. He he was he kind of wanted guards to get involved in sport and in cultural events in these areas. 
And if you think if you think of it, it was actually a very good strategy because it actually opened up towns, villages around the country that would have been anti-treaty. And then they would have seen a local guard coming down and getting involved in the community, maybe setting up a, a, a gala club that wasn't there or setting up a, a cultural you know, area for people to be there. The number one guard, actually, who who is on our roll of honour, Harry Phelan, he was shot while collecting uh, hurley sticks and slitters to set up a, a new club in Callan in, in County Kilkenny. So it was that ethos of sports, community, cultural involvement in the communities that the guards went to that owner Duffy brought mm. to the job. And, you know, very quickly, he he was very much liked by, by the recruits. He also brought discipline. And what we've spoken about earlier on, the guards needed discipline at that juncture. Probably needed discipline throughout, but particularly then, you know, time after the Kildare mutiny, you know, move, moving forward. So he he definitely did bring discipline, but he also brought the community ethos that, you know, today we still have in Angarda Sheikhana. Uh, his, his career, you know... In Angola Chicana, I suppose, is summed up with the, the 1932 Eucharistic uh, Congress, which took place in Dublin. So it was the first major international event that was policed in Dublin. And by all accounts and by letters that were received afterwards, it was very well policed and it was very, uh, you know, he got a lot of kudos for that job that he did. Mm. Interesting way of remembering Owen O'Duffy wouldn't be typical of the kind of memories no. most people would have. I, well, as I said, Miles, I, that's up to a, yeah. cer- up to a certain it, point. Up to a certain point. Yeah, he's gone at that stage, yeah. so he's of uh, no consequence as far as you're concerned. Sheila, um, let's move on a generation and talk a little bit about the second generation of Ungarda Shiakana. The original guards are retiring, many of them, uh, you know, as Stephen was saying, former former IRA men. And a new generation is coming on board with little or no experience of policing national security threats, which the first input very definitely would have had. I mean, they would have themselves have been a security threat, I suppose you could say. But then they're policing a security, th- a lot of security threats. Yeah, I think Conor Brady said it, you know, as a policeman's paradise. So you had low crime rates, you had this new intake, but actually you had other issues that kind of challenged their policing. So as I say, it was a policeman's paradise on paper, but you had issues like low morale, issues around pay. There was changes in society that maybe working as police officers wasn't as attractive as it had been. You had a, a new intake that it was very different from what Angarda Shia had represented prior to that. But you also had women in the force, which was new or a few women in the force in comparison to now. But um, so it was very different policing, uh, we'd say societal as well as the policing type that they were doing. Tell me about the, the women in the force. The first 12 recruits, I think, came in uh, in 1959. So you know, had to wait quite a while for, for women to exactly. become involved. And I think when you hear women in the force and you think nationally, you think of women in the force nationally, but they weren't. They were only in Dublin and they were only in two stations, I think Pier Street and Store Street. So like it wasn't really, it was a handful of women that were brought in to police a very specific issue. And that was kind of children related issues or female related issues or moral related issues. So in terms of, as I say, just having women was one thing, but they were there for very specific 
reason just to police those issues as opposed to taking on the same duties as their male counterparts. And was the was the marriage ban of, of any significance or was it of major significance? Oh, major significance because once they were married, they had to leave. So, you know, that was a big issue for, for women that wanted to stay. The option wasn't there for them. So very few people actually stayed. So in many ways, women would have had that kind of less experience. So you were losing women with that were just gaining experience and they wanted to get married and then they were out again. So for women especially, that lack of experience lasted way longer than it did for, for their male counterparts. And how long does it take for women then to be really assimilated into the into Angarda and to be doing the same kind of jobs as their, their male counterparts? I think by the 90s they were doing that similar long. roles, yes. But um, in terms of the numbers, it wasn't until the early 2000s that actually the recruitment numbers were there was a policy to actually recruit more women. I think it was 25% at that time. Um, I know myself, I went in in 98 and they were 33% in our recruitment, which was which was quite good. But you weren't seeing that, you know, on the streets till the 2000s. And Stephen, there was obviously a lot of public interest in new female recruits in the, in the 60s, but uh, politicians, some politicians at least, were less than respectful. Yeah, but well, for the book and, and uh, a number of years back, I had the pleasure of interviewing one of the first 12 uh, ladies who joined the job. They were known as the 12 Apostles, very similar to, to Michael Collins' group. And I hope they didn't have the same kind of function. <laughs> no, no, they did not. Uh, and the lady in question was Margaret or Peg Tierney, as she was uh, known to her colleagues. So Peg would have told me stories in relation to, to when she joined the job and and when they were training in particular in, in Phoenix Park and she told me that more people would go and take photographs of the, of the ladies training in the square than would go to take photographs of the monkeys in, in, in Dublin Zoo. <laughs> um, but she said there was there was just cameras everywhere and she regaled a story of the first time she went on the beat and she was walking along Grafton Street and a colleague of hers, George Power from, from Pear Street, came over to, to say hello as you would. And just at that moment, a photographer jumped up and took a, a photograph of the male and the female guard and it, it made the front of the Irish press, I believe. But Peg then was brought in the next day when the paper came out and was disciplined for idly chatting on duty uh, at, the, at the time. Was the male uh, officer? No. no. Right. No. OK, well, there you go. No, I, I don't believe so. So although Peg would say, you know, she was very, very welcomed by the officers in Pier Street, you know, it was a different job and, and it was less pay, uh, the equipment, you know, they, they wouldn't get handcuffed at radios until a lot later. The the people who were in the station, the males who were not married would live in the station, in the dorms in the station. This is a particular Pier Street, but would have happened in other stations up and down the country. And the females would, would live in boarded accommodation close by. So females generally were on call 24-7 if there was a female prisoner, if there was a child involved. And they would be collected, you know, at any time of the night to conduct their role. And Sheila, as you say, you joined the force in 1998. What was your experience like compared to those first female recruits in the 1960s? Complete chalk and cheese. You know, by the time I joined, the positive recruitment policy had, I felt, really benefited the female members that joined at that time. Women were actively, females were actively chosen for training, you know, in specialist areas. You know, there might be just one on a unit or two on a unit, but there was always a lot in the station, like collective stations. So um, you were policing as 
with your male counterparts, but there was always that kind of female backup. When we're talking about the low numbers, there may have been one woman in a region, mm. <laughs> never mind in a station. And, 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 you know, back then, that was just important to have that kind of gendered element of support as well, which was always there for me and, and my colleagues. So I would say we we to- it was completely different. Not only was it a completely different role, but actually it was a completely different environment. And by my stage, we were trained and we took on the same role and we were paid the exact same. So we didn't have that issue. At what point did the, the, the expression ban Garda, was, did that disappear? It was definitely gone by the time. So when we joined... Uh, we'll say as a policy, we weren't called Bangardas, but um, publicly yeah. people still call you. And I think even the older generation might call you that as a term of endearment nowadays. But um, it had definitely gone as a as a kind mm. of a policy that yeah. we referred to. But as it is, we, we still got skirts. Oh, all right. okay. <laughs> that the tradition kept going for a while. Um, now, your chapter in the book is Policing the Troubles. It wasn't just terrorism, though, that the, the guards had to deal with. There was a surge in all types of crime. Yes, I, I think that era we often think of very in two very distinct lenses. One, the troubles and how... How challenging that was to to police for this generation of police officers, but also at the very same time we had the drug epidemic here. And I think we we see them very much as separate policing eras when actually, in fact, they weren't. And the the limited discussion as them being, you know, the same or having a relationship is when we talk about organised crime and paramilitaries working together. But we rarely speak as uh, having an impact on policing which I think is huge because you have two major challenges that are new to the police force, two very different geographical locations. We'd say you had drugs in in major cities, um, whereas you had paramilitary stuff more throughout the country. So I think, you know, for Angarda Shiakana at that time, there were two huge challenges for management to deal with. And also you would have more deaths in the in the force as a direct or indirect consequence of the of the the troubles. Dick Fallon would be the first that I would remember as a child in in the in 1970. Yes. And I think like it's a positive in many ways that we still remember the names of the police that have been killed on duty in Ireland. And it's an indication that they're not huge in number. But I think when they did happen back then and when they, they happen now, I think it reconnects and guard Shia with the people. I think it goes back to being unarmed, that people realise that the extent of the challenges that police face back then and now. And I think that that legacy of, as I say, being unarmed and having to face the challenges that were faced during the times of the trouble and subsequent the people and the politicians at that point, to to a large extent, realised that these are ordinary members of our community mm. going out to the front line, so citizens won't have to. And I think it's back then and even now that's when the public really, I think, appreciate Angarda Shiakana and the community, the level of community that they please. Yeah, I mean, there is a huge sense of shock whenever a, a Garda is killed in the course of duty, something that you wouldn't get in New York, for example. I mean, it, would, it happens uh, all too frequently, unfortunately, in an environment like that. Um, we're talking about the book The Guardians, 100 Years of On Garda Shiakona. My guests are Garda Stephen Moore, Superintendent Paul Marr and security consultant and former Garda Sergeant Sheila Brady. 
Um, Stephen, you have a chapter on Lugs Brannigan, one of the most famous guards, uh, part very much of the mythology of, of Dublin and uh, uh, certainly I would have assumed a member of the force about whom there would have been a lot of ambiguity uh, given his his methods. Do you think he'd be sacked today? I don't I, I don't think he'd last too long, Miles, today, you know, in fairness. like Just for, for people who've never, I mean, obviously, you know, I don't think anybody here would have lived through the era of, of Lugs Brannigan, but you'd be familiar with the name. Just for anybody who isn't familiar yeah, with the name, just I, talk about him a bit. I, I suppose with Lugs Brannigan, Lugs was, I suppose, famous, infamous. You, you can use either term. Just as an example, I recently met a men's shed group from Cabra and and individuals all in their, you know, 70s and early 80s. And there was 12. Out of the 12, 10 had interactions with Lugs Brannigan. <laughs> interactions. Uh, in, in, interactions. And out of those, eight remember him fondly and two remember him, as they would say, as a bully. Right. Uh, you know, so, so Lugs, Lugs um, you know, to kind of start where he came from in the job, he, he only qualified... Uh, in the job, you know, as a younger man, he, he sneaked through in his shoulder width area and very quickly he he established a that he wanted to become fitter, he wanted to become stronger. So he trained, he first trained as a rower and then he trained and he became more famous as, as a boxer. He was stationed in, in, in Kevin Street in the, in the city. In boxing terms, he would be known as a slugger, not necessarily a, a world champion or easy on his feet. Uh, there was one story when he was representing Ireland in the late 1930s in a competition in Germany. And on that occasion, he was fighting against the world champion. So for Lugs, he was knocked down nine times, but each time he got back up. So that, that would give you some insight in the man. He got back up and at the end of, of the contest, he received a standing ovation from the crowd who were there. But more of a Mike Tyson than a Muhammad Ali. Yes, more right. of Mike Tyson than Muhammad Ali. In his role as, as a guard and later on as a sergeant in the A district, you know, he was very well known locally. He was very well respected, particularly by women of the area for two reasons. One was one of his pet hates was uh, domestic abuse. Now, many a time with Lowe's, he would solve the issue himself by pulling the partner aside or the husband aside and giving that individual a warning. If that didn't suffice, that warning might gravitate to, to something else. But he was well respected, particularly, uh, you know, the Liberties area, the, the, the A district. The women of that area in that generation were very, very powerful. And they were, it was more so a matriarchal society in that area. And Lugs was to the fore of that. You know, he, he didn't like to give ch a child a charge sheet. He'd rather give a child a, a second chance. There was a, a wonderful story of when Lugs was on his retirement, that two women came to his retirement due. They were ladies of the night and they presented Lugs a, I think it was a water for crystal set and a, and a silver set. Because again, the prostitutes who worked in Dublin had a great liking of Lugs because he hated women being mistreated. You know, so again, parts of him, he was ahead of his time. The other aspect of him, I suppose, was the famous Brano 7 van and his, the first, I suppose, riot police that yet you would have had in the city. And Lugs was in charge of this van. So it would have been Lugs and there would have been a number of members split from Kevin Street and from Pierce Street. And they would have gone to any any issue that arise from 
different dance halls, the anywhere where trouble was suspected that it might possibly happen, Lugs would attend. Now, many times when Lugs stepped out of the van, a shout would go up, Lugs is here. And that would be enough to, to <laughs> ease the tension. If that didn't work, the second uh, it progressed uh, onto Lugs putting on his famous black gloves and then people knew that there was trouble ahead. So, yes, he was a bit of a, I suppose, John Wayne in a Western type of character. There was two sides to him. Uh, the lads in chemistry will always remember uh, Mickey Edmonds, who Lugs kind of adopted to the station. So Mickey was a local lad. He had disabilities and he just had this fascination with regards from the vicinity. And Lugs kind of brought him into Kevin Street and, and Mickey remained in Kevin Street until, until he passed away, I think, I think about 10 years ago. And all the guards of Kevin Street took Mickey, in, you know, into their care. So uh, Mickey would go to a special school maybe for a couple of hours a day, but he could spend up to 10 hours in Kevin Street Guard Station, you know. And anybody who worked in the city, especially my generation, would know Mickey or would have had met Mickey. But it was actually Lugs Brannigan who introduced him to the station. So I suppose what I'm saying is Lugs had many sides. Would he survive in the job today? No, he wouldn't. But there was definitely areas of him in relation mm. to Mickey, in relation to the protection of women and so forth, that he was ahead of his time in, in those areas. And, and Paul, I mean, we associate him, or at least certainly I associate him, with a, a bunch of thugs basically called the Animal Gang. What's yeah, the Animal Gang, very interesting. They were basically groups of kids from across the city and they might distinguish themselves with their tie. You know, you might have a green tie if you're from the Jervis Street area. You might have a blue tie if you're from the Liberties area. And they generally had sort of early aspects of organised criminality. Yeah, betting fraud would be a big thing. So they'd go out and they'd, they'd place a bet. And if the horse didn't come in, well, the bookie didn't get the money. But if the horse came in, they'd make sure that they collected. So all of this was going on in the city at the time. And of course, there was always a struggle for power and who's going to have more influence. And there was a huge case that Lugs got information on from a lady in Ash Street. He was on the beat one day in Ash Street. And he was told that there's going to be trouble in Baldoyle today. And in those days, Baldoyle had a big race course. And uh, so Lugs got his crew together and he went out and he managed to get that crew just as they kicked off and there were a few arrests. But that was the type of ethos that Lugs brought Again, a lot of the, the women in the area made sure that their young lads didn't get into trouble and they could see if fellas were getting into animal gangs. That type of matriarchy that was in the community at the time and, and still is um, in some areas in the city centre, you know, that went up to the people who could act on it. But there was, there was another story about him uh, away on a boxing trip in London and he was in Kilburn and there was a, a group of, uh, you know, second generation Irish and they were kicking off and it just happened at Lugs and the couple of the boxing team walked around the corner and one of the, the young lads uh, from London said, "Geez, there's Lugs Brannigan and the whole lot of them scattered. <laughs> In London? <laughs> In London. OK. His <laughs> reputation preceded him. Um, when we were talking about the troubles, uh, uh, Sheila, we should have mentioned the, the Special Criminal Court and the emergence of the Special Criminal Court, which long after the troubles, uh, theoretically anyway, have, have ended, still continues. What's the attitude of members of the Garda Shia towards the, the Special Criminal Criminal court. Do they prefer that to, uh, you know, to risking a case in front of a jury? I think it would 
be wrong of me to answer on behalf of a whole organisation. Not that I've just left. Okay, but I don't what's think your attitude? <laughs> my, my opinion is there's pros and cons to it. In many serious cases, it provides an opportunity for citizens to be on a jury without the chance of being picked out by these organised crime groups or terrorist groups and threatened. So in some way, it puts a line of protection between the citizen as jurors. Um, but on the other hand, our legal system is to be represented and tried by a jury of your peers and therefore three judges doesn't necessarily abide by that. So I think my opinion is while it, it worked at that time, I'd love to statistically know how many cases have been lost in comparison to had they gone through a jury trial and do kind of some more analytical research on it. But in terms of providing if people don't want to be jurors, how do you get jurors to sit? So, But there are issues, I think, from a human rights perspective that we shouldn't negate just because it protects citizens as jurors. So I think it's a really complicated question and I think it works in some cases and doesn't in others. But I don't think we should um, not look deeper into it. I think it needs more more ongoing attention of where does it end? And finally, Stephen, you devote a chapter in the book to uh, one of the major initiatives, one of the major policing initiatives of the last few decades. That's the Criminal Assets Bureau. You have a conversation with the former Minister for Justice, Nora Owen, and retired Garda Commissioner, Fakna Murphy. Just talk to me a little bit about the establishment and the work of the CAB. It was a, a wonderful opportunity to, to actually talk to the former Minister, uh, Nora Owen, and, and to Fakna Murphy, former Commissioner in the establishment. CIB celebrated 25 years. Their 25th anniversary was, was last year. You know, it will go down as one of the most successful arms of law enforcement in this country in the previous 100 years. And I, I don't think there's a, there's a doubt about that. You know, the reasons behind the setting up of, of CIB, at that time in society, there was, a, there was a view that criminals were getting away with crimes and they were flaunting the wealth that they made from this criminal activity in front of people. I think up and down, particularly where I'm from in Dublin, but other cities and towns, normal people could see this. And, you know, any any police service listens to the public and changes with societal changes. And between Ungarda Chicana and between the government of the day, it was decided after a couple of serious murders you know, Veronica Guerin being one with the, the journalists mm. who everybody would know and would remember, but also her own lost member, Jerry McCabe, you know, uh, down in Adair, who, who, who was shot and killed. So there was a couple of, of moments that changed people's attitudes and changed people's thoughts. And those two murders definitely changed the thoughts and the beliefs of the government of the day. And also you know, gave, I think, an avenue to Ungreta Shikana to approach the government and have more of an ear and so would get more of an ear from them. So that led to uh, legal changes being brought forward and it led to the creation of CAB, Criminal Assets Bureau. So for the first time in our history, you had the different arms of Ungreta Shikana, revenue and social, you know, working together to find out the people who were benefiting from the proceeds of, of crime. And, and Nora kind of explained it very fundamental was, you know, when she attended the, the cab offices, there was three white boards, you know, where you would have revenue, social and guards. And 
the names that appeared on three could be crossed over and would be investigated. So it, it was very basic, you know, for want of a better term, it was a basic way. But for the first time in history, the state, it was the first time that these three agencies could work together to catch the criminals and to take away their earnings from criminality. To me, um, just it was a really innovative approach to bring these organisations together. And I think it was really one of the milestones where Angarda Siakana was seen internationally as a really progressive organisation. And I think it's something that Angarda Siakana don't sell enough. It's been copied, mirrored, not only in relation to the seizure of assets, but that very model of co-housing different organisations. And I think the guards have definitely learned, but I think many other organisations have learned that for serious crime, you need that cross collaboration ongoing from a day to day basis. And I think it would not be wrong to say that Angarda Siakana were the real kind of uh, leaders in that area. And it's really significant internationally how many countries have followed suit. Well, thank you all very much indeed for joining me this evening. Uh, the book is, by the way, beautifully illustrated. It's a fantastically produced book. It's a credit uh, to you, Stephen, in particular. And you have been very, very well served by O'Brien Press in the way the book is is presented. But it's a detailed look at many different aspects of the history of On Agartha Siakona, the good, the bad and the ugly. Uh, we've touched on just a few of them tonight. The book is called The Guardians, 100 Years of On Garda Siakona, 1922 to 2022, published, as I said, by O'Brien Press. My guests were Stephen Moore, Paul Marr and Sheila Brady. Thank you all very much indeed for joining us this evening. That's all we've got time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items as well as podcasts are available on our website rte.ie forward slash history show. My thanks tonight to Ruth Kennington on sound and our researcher Liz Gillis. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now from me, Miles Dungan and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>